0: Welcome to STEM Talk. Welcome to STEM Talk, where we introduce you to fascinating people who passionately inhabit the scientific and technical frontiers of our society.
1: Hello, folks. This is Dr. Ken Ford, IHMC's director and chairman of the Double Secret Selection Committee, which selects all of the guests who appear on STEM Talk. Today, we have part two of my interview with Dr. Greg Potter, a British researcher who specializes in circadian biology, sleep, diet, and metabolism. My co-host, Don Kernagas, is off on travels and will not be joining us today. Greg gained attention in the United States and Europe for his research into the importance of biological rhythms and sleep. His work has been widely covered in the media, including the BBC World Service, The Washington Post, Reuters, and many other scientific and news outlets. Today, Greg is a science writer, speaker, sleep coach, and entrepreneur. In part one of my interview with Greg, we covered his years at the University of Leeds in the United Kingdom, where he became so fascinated with circadian biology that he made it the focus of his PhD research. We also discussed what Greg has learned about the role and importance of melatonin, a hormone that helps control the body's sleep cycle. In today's part two of my interview with Greg, we discuss therapies for insomnia, including sleep devices. We also cover sleep apnea, the role that diet and body weight play in sleep, time-restricted eating, exercise, and various ways to deal with insomnia. In addition, Greg talks about launching his company, Resilient Nutrition. Before I get to my interview with Greg, however, I have some housekeeping to take care of. As regular listeners of STEM Talk already know, our double-secret selection committee continually and carefully reviews iTunes, Google, Stitcher, and other podcast apps for the wittiest and most lavishly praise-filled five-star reviews to read on STEM Talk. If you hear your review read on STEM Talk, just contact us at stemtalk at IHMC.us to claim your official STEM Talk t-shirt. Today, our winning review was posted by someone who goes by the moniker Avid Listener. The review is titled Uber Popular Conversations, and the review reads, Podcasts have become uber popular, and STEM Talk is a big reason why. Who knew there was a real audience for intelligent thought and conversation, except, of course, for the super secret selection committee that chooses STEM Talk's fascinating guests. Thank you. Well, thank you, avid listener. And thank you to all our other STEM Talk listeners who have helped STEM Talk become such a great success. Okay, and now on to our interview with Dr. Greg Potter.
2: Stem
0: talk.
1: Stem talk. 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 Another sleep related topic that we get a, a good, good number, maybe 20 questions over the last couple of years about, is uh, machines like uh, CPAP and BiPAP. And, you know, the, there's a range of different sort of sleep devices. How do those connect to circadian rhythm and, and sort of quality of sleep? You know, some of these folks have sleep apnea and
2: related conditions. Sleep apnea is enormously burdensome, and it's widely underdiagnosed, too. Atul Malhotra published some work in one of the Lancet journals recently suggesting that something like a billion middle-aged adults worldwide have obstructive sleep apnea. And just to briefly describe what that is, it's a disorder in which the upper airway intermittently collapses during sleep. And that, of course, temporarily deprives people of oxygen and leads to a variety of different downstream consequences. So their sleep breaks up, it's less restorative. During the daytime, they're often prone to sleepiness and they're therefore more at risk of traffic accidents. But there's a variety of downstream cardiometabolic health problems too that arise, hypertension, poor blood sugar control, and so on. And people can have different forms of sleep apnea but a lot of people have obstructive sleep apnea because of the size of the neck and because of their body weight, frankly. So that increase in sleep apnea that we see worldwide is largely driven by the overweight and obesity epidemic. And so with all of that said, the first port of call for a lot of people is CPAP. And all this is is a a continuous stream of air that's delivered via a mask and acts as a splint to keep the upper airway open. And While some people struggle to adhere to it, it can be enormously transformative. You hear patients say things like, It's as if I had a brain transplant because my cognition is so much better than it was previously. So, it's another instance in which you need to see a sleep medicine specialist. You might not necessarily need to spend a night at a sleep center getting your sleep assessed by way of polysomnography. There are at home tests for obstructive sleep apnea nowadays, too. And you might also find that. If you do have obstructive sleep apnea, CPAP is for you, but there are different types of positive airway pressure, like you mentioned. There are also different devices that can reposition the jaw if that's a problem, and that alone can be enough to help you with your sleep apnea. So it's definitely not an instance in which one size fits all.
1: Earlier, you mentioned chronotypes and the idea is here that we would have different chronotypes and this would determine whether someone is more of a morning person or a night owl, to use these terms. During our interview with Sachin Panda, however, he argued that chronotypes and the existence of night owls and morning larks is essentially a myth. So what do you think? Uh, To what extent are chronotypes products of the environment versus evolutionary biology and genetics? In other words, are there really morning larks and
2: night owls, and if so, how? I will again just preface my answer by saying that I I don't know Sachin, but I'm a huge fan of his work, and I'm not familiar with the details of his perspective, but with that out the way, I think the chronotype does exist, and it exists both in humans and in non-human animals, and I, I experience this firsthand as someone who is well into the first centile of earliness, and... I just wake up much earlier than most people my age and it's something that, that can be a bit of a struggle at times in some aspects of life. So with that said, it's hard to work out chronotype and the relative contribution of the environment and genetics. So if you think about the assessment of chronotype, then think of chronotype as being a construct because it's an output of an entire clockwork system, not just the master clock in the brain. So it's virtually impossible to directly assess an individual's chronotype since there's no single circadian phase marker and the way that chronotype is assessed in very large-scale studies is often very crude in the uk biobank for example there's a single question and it just asks people whether they are definite morning types moderate morning types moderate evening types or definite evening types so it's easy to see the limitations of that type of approach with respect to the environment If you give people very strong time cues, so lots of high intensity light during the day, minimal light at night, food only during the day, fasting at night, then differences between people in their preferred sleep-wake schedules rapidly disappear. And Ken Wright from the University of Colorado did some wonderful work on this a few years ago. He had people go camping in the Rocky Mountains in which they were exposed to minimal artificial light. And they did one study in the summer, one in the winter, and they found that while well, there were big differences between people in their sleep-wake timing before camping, after just a few days of camping, their body's clocks tightly synchronized with the natural light dark cycle, such that the start of their biological night times, which you can assess by way of melatonin, tightly synced to the sunset. And the end of the biological nighttime occurred around dawn. So it was actually, I think, just after sunrise. And as I touched on, the differences between people were, were much, much smaller afterwards. And that was largely driven by the fact that the late types going into the study became earlier, the early types didn't shift so much. And then interestingly, they also found some differences between the seasons such that when they went camping in the winter and the nights were longer, the biological nighttime was correspondingly longer too. So that just drills home that if you give people appropriate environments, then those differences between people and their chronotype will disappear. But with that said, genetics do matter too. There are far ends of the chronotype continuum. And if you look at those people, then you have some people who have delayed sleep phase syndrome, and you have some people who have advanced sleep phase syndrome. So people who have the advanced sleep phase syndrome have exceptionally early body clocks. And this can run in families and we know something about the genetic basis of some of those familial advanced sleep phase syndrome instances and then we also have found people who have mutations in in some clock genes that have delayed sleep phase syndrome and michael young who's one of the guys that won the nobel prize in physiology or medicine for his work on circadian rhythms has done some work on this so with that said i think in a natural light dark cycle chronotype would be a trait that is driven largely by somebody's genetics but nowadays because some of us have strong time cues we spend lots of time outdoors during the day we sleep in dark rooms whereas others have weak time cues chronotype now is more of a state and that of course makes the whole study of chronotype more difficult too so hopefully that sheds some light on the matter
1: definitely that was a, a fine answer and uh... Uh, I liked your way of explaining the interplay between genetics and, and the environment. What would be uh, an example of somebody with a chronotype associated with advancing the clock, an early riser? Is that four in the morning? Or
2: Well, I think that the, the best data that we have on this comes from a data set that's been compiled by Till Rohnenberg over the years. He came up with a simple questionnaire to assess chronotype named the Munich Chronotype Questionnaire Test, the MCTQ. And they've had hundreds of thousands of people complete their questionnaire now, so they have a very large data set. And what they find is that the earliest people have a mid-sleep time, which is their proxy of chronotype, and they correct for sleep debt, but we don't need to worry about that now. They have a mid-sleep time, which is about 12 hours earlier than the mid-sleep time of the latest people so <laughs> those those people are at completely opposite
1: yeah.
2: ends of the 24-hour day
1: Yeah, that's amazing variation
2: yeah and again it comes down to weak time cues but just to answer your question more directly the earliest types can have a mid-sleep time that's that's before midnight hmm. and the the latest types can have a mid-sleep time that's about 11 a.m in the morning
1: it's um quite an impressive variation in the same species, in the same environment.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Chrono-nutrition, which is the relationship between a person's nutrition and their body clock, as the name would imply, is a relatively new area of inquiry. You authored a summary of relevant science, which you published in the British Journal of Nutrition. The circadian clock programs all sorts of processes in our bodies, such as our sleep cycle, digestion, metabolism, and immune function, to name a few. Can you give listeners an overview of what you've learned specifically about chrononutrition and its key principles that people would benefit from paying attention to?
2: Of course. I think it has two important implications. One is that what and when you eat influence the function of your body's clock. And the other is that because your clock optimizes your body for certain processes at certain times of day, you can use that understanding of your clock to optimize your diet to improve how you respond to the foods and drinks that you consume. And we could easily fill several podcasts on the subject of chronic nutrition alone. So I'll just give you what I think the key takeaways are. And I think it makes sense to quickly define some terms. One is time restricted eating. I know that you spoke with Sachin about this, but time restricted eating, in my mind, entails restricting intake of any calorie containing items to a period of 12 hours or less each day. So if, for example, you started your breakfast at 10 a.m. and you finished your dinner at 8 p.m., that would be a 10-hour caloric period or eating window. And there's also intermittent fasting, and some people use time-restricted eating and intermittent fasting interchangeably. I don't personally. What I tend to suggest is that intermittent fasting is periodic use of a fast of 24 hours or longer. So maybe you do one 24-hour fast each week, for instance. Now, with that out of the way... The key takeaways, I think, are that first, the subject is more important if your health isn't very good. If you're in really good health, I don't think it matters so much. Next, I think, if we think about the day beginning with when you wake up, you should wait a little bit of time before you consume anything other than water. Typically, suggest that people wait at least an hour after they wake up. And that's especially important if you've woken up during the biological nighttime because you'll probably still have a substantial amount of melatonin circulating in your blood, which is going to affect your blood sugar responses to eating and so on. If you're using time-restricted eating, which I think is helpful in many instances, I think using a, a 6 to 12 hour eating window is a good way to go for most people. Generally suggests that you, you base that window on what your diet and your goals are. So if, for instance, you're currently spreading out your eating over 14 hours each day, I wouldn't jump straight to an eight-hour eating window, I think that would be a bit difficult. You might start with 12 hours and then move to 11 and then to 10. If your goal is to lose weight, then I think using a slightly shorter eating window, so maybe eight hours, might be preferable to a longer one such as 12 hours, whereas if you're trying to maintain or gain weight, perhaps you favour a 12-hour eating window. In general, a shorter eating window is probably well suited to the ketogenic diet. And Ken, I know that you're a big fan of the ketogenic diet. I just think that by spending that much longer in the fastest state, you're likely to accelerate ketogenesis a bit more. And so if you're just starting on a ketogenic diet, you, you might want to implement time-restricted eating to make that process a bit more straightforward. And then within the eating window, concentrating a lot of your calories early in the eating window makes a lot of sense, although it can be a bit tricky. There's been quite a lot of research on early time-restricted eating in recent years. Some of the fantastic initial research was done by Elizabeth Sutton, and she took men who have prediabetes and had them go through early time-restricted eating for five weeks. So these people finished their final meal by 3pm, and then later she crossed them over to a 12-hour eating window. And she found that the early time restricted eating condition improved insulin sensitivity. It lowered their blood pressure by about 10 millimeter mercury, which is comparable to many antihypertensive drugs. And it also reduced markers of oxidative stress and reduced appetite late at night. With that said, a lot of people struggle to implement early time restricted eating because they either feel ravenous late in the day, or they work nine to five jobs and a lot of social occasions such as dinner occur later in the day so it just doesn't fit their social life and if that's the case then maybe early time restricted eating isn't for you but you could still front load your intake and have a large first meal. Next I'd say wait maybe three to six hours between meals. There are a few different reasons for this but one that is important I think is that if you eat more frequently than that then If you're interested in your body composition, you might not be able to maximally stimulate muscle protein synthesis. And that's a key determinant of changes in your skeletal muscle mass and your fat-free mass over time. And the reason is just that it seems that if you keep providing someone with amino acids, after a while, the muscle protein synthesis stops. It, it, It just drops, despite the fact that amino acid availability remains high. And Phil Atherton has done a lot of the work on this, and they name it the muscle full effect. So I think having some space between meals makes sense. Mm-hmm. And then I mentioned earlier that that front loading intakes matters. And there are all sorts of reasons for that. But in clinical situations, this this can be really important. And Danielle Yakubovic has done some great work on this. So for example, she's done some work in diabetes showing that if you control for energy intake and for macronutrition, so the proportions of carbohydrate and fat and protein that people are consuming. Then, after 12 weeks of two different types of diets, so in one condition, people have a big breakfast and three meals a day, but the other condition, they spread their eating out more over the day and divide it between six meals. Despite the fact that the people are eating exactly the same number of calories and proportions of macronutrients, only the big breakfast, three meal group experienced weight loss, and they also had dramatic improvements in their blood sugar control, too. So, in these people who have diabetes, they spent something like 80% more time within a healthy blood sugar range after the intervention. So with that said, the one factor to consider is that when you exercise could also influence how you distribute your calories during the day. And the relevance of that, of course, is that if you exercise, say in the afternoon, The exercise might lead to all sorts of changes, so increases in non-insulin-mediated glucose uptake into skeletal muscles, for example, which are going to help improve your blood sugar control. So I think if you exercise in the afternoon, you don't need to worry so much about front loading your intakes. And I'll, I'll just mention a few more. One is that you should distribute your protein intake relatively evenly across the day. The relevance of that is that a lot of people in the UK and the US have loads of protein at dinner and very little at breakfast. And with respect to body composition, that's not ideal because it seems that at each meal you need enough protein and enough of the amino acid, L-leucine in particular, to maximally stimulate muscle protein synthesis. And then at the end of the day, I think you want to stop consuming anything other than water about two hours before bedtime. And you want to go to bed neither hungry nor full just because if you have too much too late in the day, then that could negatively affect your sleep. And then otherwise, I think... Having regular meal patterns does matter, and that might also be true of when you take medications. And then finally, if you consume a substantial amount of carbohydrate and your blood sugar regulation isn't as good as you would like it to be, then at each meal or snack, you should consume carbohydrate-rich items last. This is based on some work done by Alpana Shukla. She's done several studies on people who have pre-diabetes or diabetes. And she's shown that if you have these people consume carbohydrate-rich foods first at a given meal, and then after 10 minutes or so they have some protein and some fat and some fiber, so maybe some vegetables with some oil and, and some meat, then their blood sugar responses are something like 40 to 70% worse in the two hours after the meal than people who have the carbohydrates 10 minutes after the other items. And there's also a difference in insulin responses. So if your metabolic regulation isn't as good as you would like it to be, save your carbohydrates for the end of meals. <laughs> or,
1: or, or avoid them altogether.
2: Or avoid them altogether <laughs> if you're on a keto diet. Absolutely.
1: You mentioned uh, muscle protein synthesis, and th- this has come up a few times as uh, a potential problem for people doing fasting diets. It came up in the interview with Mark Matson, for example, in that, um, a lot of people, particularly as they age are, are essentially anabolically resistant and mm-hmm. they need more protein, uh, than they acquired or they required in their youth. And now they're, uh, involved in fasting and is generally good for them, right? It's a lot of people are mm-hmm. insulin resistant and overweight, and they're sort of trapped between these two sort of goals. And, um, uh, you know, I, I, I sort of think a pulsatile approach to stimulating muscle protein synthesis via mTOR pathway is a good idea. You know, I, I'm aware of people that keep that pathway continually activated, and I, it's not uh, correlated with good health outcomes but a strong pulsatile activation, I think, is probably the way to go. Do you have any thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, I agree. And I think we have to consider tissue specificity too. You want sufficient mTOR and insulin, IGF-1 signaling in in skeletal muscle because as humans, (laughs) when we fall, we fall hard. And later in life, as our muscles get more anabolically resistant, We have to maintain muscle mass and strength if we want to be well, because the excess mortality that's associated with hip fracture, for example, late in life is really concerning. And what that means is that we should put an onus on developing enough skeletal muscle mass and developing high bone mineral density early in life so that we have a buffer later in life. But then as we age, we we still need to give our musculoskeletal system sufficient stimuli to maintain their resilience. And those stimuli are, of course, appropriate resistance training, which doesn't need to mean lifting weights. It can be calisthenics, it can be jumping exercise and so on. But then also appropriate nutrition. And so periodically having those boluses of protein that are sufficient to maximally stimulate muscle protein synthesis, which is the main determinant of changes in muscle protein balance and hence muscle mass over time is really important. I think that sometimes that sometimes that's lost in people who discuss anti-aging interventions, who say that mTOR is bad, insulin IGF-1 is bad, growth hormone is bad. The reality is that we need enough of those signaling pathways in certain tissues, but certainly in other tissues, we want those to be low.
1: Well, of course, and uh, if you, well, this, this will sound mean-spirited, but uh... Uh, The folks who say that the loudest do not remind me of the sprinters. (laughs) Quite right. Uh, Just briefly, uh, I know that you've mentioned chronopharmacology in podcasts and in talks. Could you briefly tell us what, and I think we can tell by the name, but what chronopharmacology is and uh, does it tie into nutrition? Uh, Just give us the quick explanation on that one.
2: Yeah, so the circadian system regulates the... Absorption of drugs, the the distribution of them, the metabolism of them, and their excretion, too. And so all of those different things vary over the course of the day. And interestingly, most of the best selling drugs in the US and elsewhere target genes that are regulated by the circadian system. And so the implication of that is that if we can better understand when to take the drugs relative to somebody's body clock, then we could potentially reduce the amount of medication they need. And reduce side effects and costs. And it's probably not true of all drugs, but it's true of many of them. And the way that this potentially ties into nutrition is that I mentioned earlier that when we eat and what we eat also might set the timing of many of our peripheral clocks. One of those is the liver clock. And the liver is, of course, critical to those processes that I mentioned earlier in drug metabolism. So for example, how toxic paracetamol is to mice depends on when it's administered. But if you change the times of day at which the mice have access to food, then you also change the times of day at which the paracetamol is most toxic to the mice. So because you're shifting the liver clock, you're shifting when the, the, the mouse in this instance, but the person also should take the drug.
1: Thank you. That was a good uh, explanation. Circling back a little bit, and we're, we're going to circle back here to the social clock. In your book titled The Principles of Resilient Nutrition, you make the point that if we re-engineer our lifestyles to better mimic certain aspects of our distant ancestors, that we can not only protect ourselves from chronic disease, but we might also revive some of the energy we had as kids. You know, people tend to feel low energy as we age. Can you talk about the aspects of the lifestyle of our ancient ancestors that we ought to consider emulating, at least partially, and I, I know you've touched on some of this already, but if there's, uh, are there other issues that we should be
2: aware of? Yeah, I, th- I think there are a few. Obviously, this isn't an area of my expertise, but I think it's important to consume minimally processed foods, ideally those that are sourced locally. I touched earlier on the fact that these people had to be active to acquire food. And in our modern context... It makes sense to build some physical activity into our days around when we eat. And there are lots of studies on things like just taking postprandial walks. So going for a walk for 20 minutes after eating, showing that blood sugar responses are substantially improved. Then of course there is the the light-dark cycle, which I mentioned earlier. So spending enough time outdoors in daylight each day and keeping our nights dark is really important to circadian function and sleep health. I think there are some others that are potentially slightly less appreciated. So one is the importance of cyclic stresses obviously one of these would be that these people would have gone for long periods without access to food now lots of people are interested in fasting and so they're recapitulating what those people would have experienced and that might lead to some adaptive changes that make people more resilient but i think temperature stress is another one too and there's some really interesting research on temperature and sleep in particular which we can come back to later but just as one example of this if you have people sleep in a cool bedroom it might affect their blood sugar control, if they have poor blood sugar control, such that they improve it when the bedroom is nice and cool relative to when the bedroom is a bit warmer. Then a key one is relationships and community. I haven't done any anthropology previously, but I've heard people such as Herman Ponser speak about the fact that these people share the whole time. They share everything. They share food and caregiving responsibilities, and they don't have particularly hierarchical social structures. And then otherwise, one of them that's interesting that isn't widely discussed but is, is probably more appreciated now than it was is that a lot of these groups of people have used psychedelics i recall listening to an interview with bruce parry whose work i really like and he's an ex-special forces guy over here in the uk he's done some fascinating documentaries in which he goes and he lives with people in very remote parts of the world and tries to understand their way of life and while they don't show bruce's psychedelic experiences it's it's clear when you listen to him speak on interviews that psychedelics are an integral part of their relationship with the natural world around them and, and are really important in many of those communities so, so i find that interesting and then otherwise i think these people don't have lots of the stresses that we have nowadays they unwind and they, they play with their friends and their families and then finally i'll just add that I I do think that it's possible to do better than hunter-gatherers, of course. I think we can learn a a huge amount from them, but I don't want to be prone to the naturalistic fallacy, assuming that just because something is natural, it's better.
1: Absolutely, and uh, uh, some people, uh, rather than just take cues from our ancestors, they act as if they're engaged in some kind of historical reenactment. And uh, I think it's sort of uh, missing the point. Absolutely. You published a paper on sleep and body weight, and not surprisingly, this captured the attention of journalists. Can you tell us a bit more about the relationship between sleep and weight regulation?
2: Yeah, of course. So for one, people who report short sleep are heavier than people who don't. And if you look at all the relevant studies, then people who report short sleep, which is often defined as six hours or less per night or five hours or less per night, then those short sleepers have something like forty-five percent higher odds of going on to become obese in years to come. But there are also lots of experiments that have assessed the effects of insufficient sleep on behaviours and processes that are involved in obesity. And Siraman Ruchkul has published a, a really interesting meta-analysis relatively recently. And what they looked at was studies that have had people come into a lab and not get enough sleep. So they either have restricted time in bed, maybe something like four hours per night, or in some instances, they're deprived of sleep entirely. And the studies were up to two weeks long. And what they found was that after insufficient sleep, people are more hungry. And interestingly, there's probably a dose response relationship up to a point. So sleep deprivation might have the strongest effect. And as a result of that, people do consume more food. And on average, they found that people consume about 250 calories more each day after insufficient sleep. And some of these calories come from snacks in particular. And obviously, the quality of the snacks that we consume is sometimes not as high as the quality of the meals that we consume. They didn't find any changes in energy expenditure. So if somebody's consuming more energy, but they're not burning more energy, then over time, that's going to contribute to weight gain. And sure enough, they did find that on average, people gained a bit of weight. But interestingly, it's not just necessarily people are consuming more of the same types of foods. It might also be that they're selecting more palatable, energy-dense foods too. So with that said, I think that there are potentially a few more things that are at play too. One is just that the longer that you're awake, the more time there is to eat. (laughs) And (laughs) it's incredibly facile, I know, but it might be that people spend more time eating in the evening in particular. And we've discussed a little bit the fact that that might be particularly problematic. So if you look, for example, at the calories burned digesting, metabolizing food, it tends to be lower after food consumed in the evening than the morning. And then there are also experiments in which people have insufficient sleep and are given weight loss diets. And then other people are given the same diets, but they're allowed sufficient sleep. Some of the early work on this was done by scientists at the University of Chicago, and they found that over the course of two weeks, the group that didn't get enough sleep lost something like 55% less fat mass. So they lost a similar amount of weight, but the composition of the weight was different. And then one more thing to add is that I think if you take people who don't sleep well and you improve their sleep, then it might have some positive effects on their eating behavior there have been a couple of studies on sleep extension which you take people who don't get enough sleep and you give them more time in bed they sleep Mm -hmm. longer and their appetite and desire for sweet and salty delicious foods tends to go down and then also it's, it's probably worth adding finally that if you take overweight and obese people and you have them lose weight that can improve their sleep too so we're talking about a bi-directional relationship here. There are a few instances of this, but just as one example, yeah. there was a study that was a couple of years long and they found that when people who were overweight went through a couple of years of weight loss diets, they improved their sleep quality mm-hmm. and their mood and, and some other outcomes too.
1: Now, it's interesting. I, I was just going to ask you about the arrow of causality and uh, you know, mm. was being fat Both ways. Uh, uh, damaging sleep or was it, being heavy causative of loss of sleep, or perhaps both.
2: Yeah, I think think it's both.
0: STEM Talk is an educational service of the Florida Institute for Human and Machine Cognition, a not-for-profit research lab pioneering groundbreaking technologies aimed at leveraging and extending human cognition, perception, locomotion, and resilience.
1: You know, when we talk about sleep uh, and in in the media and even in the sort of science-popularizing sorts of journalism and podcasts, one hears constantly the use of the word epidemic. Epidemic has become some people's favorite word, I think. And so (laughs) there's an epidemic, it's said, of sleep loss, And I'm wondering if you think that's true. And are there other issues about how sleep is discussed in the media?
2: I think it's hard to tell, but the most relevant type of study suggests that it's not true. There's a scientist at the University of Pennsylvania, David Dinges, who's contributed a huge amount to the field of sleep research. And he did some nice work on the American Time Use Survey, which basically takes people in America who are 15 years old or older And it asks them on a minute-by-minute basis what they're doing during a 24-hour day. And it's done this over many years. And they found that from 2003 to 2016, sleep duration had increased by about one and a half minutes per 24 hours each year. And sleep had increased slightly less than that on weekends. But what that translates to is that over over the course of a year, you know, people are getting dozens of hours more sleep in 2016 than they were in 2003. And there's been similar research done in the UK to finding similar results. But with that said, it's not all about insufficient sleep. And there are different problems that we face nowadays that can hamper our sleep. So you have COVID-19. And during the COVID pandemic, I think a lot of people have been able to Get more sleep and sleep in better alignment with their chronotype as people have been locked down or working from home. This is probably especially true of young people. But sleep quality has suffered. And something like 40% of people have experienced some sort of sleep disturbance during the pandemic. And a lot of people have spoken about COVID somnia and COVID nightmares too. And going by some recent systematic reviews, it seems that sleep disturbances might be the most common psychiatric consequence of having COVID 19. And many people have lasting symptoms and they continue to suffer those sleep disturbances several months after having their first bout of COVID-19. But then with that said, I, I think it's also worth recognizing that some sleep disorders might be getting more common too. So I touched earlier on the fact that obstructive sleep apnea is hugely burdensome nowadays. And just on that subject, I'll mention a screening tool that's really helpful. That's sometimes used in research, but you can access it online for free. It's named stopbang, S-T-O-P-B-A-N-G C-A. If you go to that website, then you can try the questionnaire and it will give you some idea as to whether you might have sleep apnea. And then if you do, you can seek some additional help for it.
1: I'm sure that will be uh, helpful to many. Well, Greg, this has been really interesting uh, and with an eye toward being helpful to our listeners. Let's run through a list of your advice that you have for people in terms of sleep. First, could you talk about uh, patterns of light exposure and then we'll just hit on some others as, as we go through these.
2: Yeah, of course. So touched a little bit on light exposure earlier, but if we just focus on the most important takeaway points, then when you're exposed to light matters. And what I mean by that is that if you are a night owl, and you have to wake to an alarm clock each day, then you might want to try and shift your clock earlier. And to do that, you want to increase your exposure to the type of light that you get outdoors during daylight at the start of your day, between about two hours before when you'd naturally wake up and about two hours after. So if you can get outdoors into daylight pretty much as soon as you get up in the morning, then that will be helpful. And then at the other end of the day, you want to reduce your exposure to that type of light in the two to four hours before you go to bed. If, however, you are relatively elderly and you're at a point where you find yourself prone to nodding off very early in the day and you want to shift your sleep later, such that you feel that your social life doesn't suffer as much and that you're living in time with the rest of society then you actually want to reduce your exposure to light at the start of your day. Obviously, you don't want to do that to the point where all of a sudden you're surrounded by objects that you might trip up over. But perhaps if you're indoors, you might wear blue blocking glasses or if you're outdoors, you might wear sunglasses at that time of day. And then later in the day, probably between about four hours before you plan to go to bed and then about two hours before you plan to go to bed, you want to get lots of high-intensity light in particular light that's rich in short wavelengths and that light often appears blue to us but it's I should mention that light that appears white also often contains a lot of those short wavelengths too you don't have too much of that too close to sleep because that might then negatively affect your sleep especially at the start of the night and then during the sleep period itself it's of course important to keep your bedroom as dark as possible and if you do have any light emitting devices in your bedroom then it'd be best to have ones that emit red light, for red light seems to be less disruptive to sleep than other types of light. And then the final thing that I'll just mention is that a lot of people spend a lot of time in front of screens nowadays. And obviously those devices do emit light, but it's not just light that's at play. Because if we think about our interaction with smartphones, for example, then there is the content that you're exposed to too. If at the moment you're spending... Hours finding out about what's going on in Ukraine each day, then that will be quite cognitively arousing and potentially quite stressful. And so you want to restrict that type of activity to earlier in your day and not engage in it too close to bedtime. Another issue with a lot of devices is that we lose our sense of time passing. Perhaps you're watching Netflix and it's on autoplay and an episode of something finishes and it starts immediately playing the next episode. You want to try and specify upfront what you're going to watch and for how long and then when that's over stop watching it and then obviously we also want to keep those devices out of our bedrooms and i think ideally turn them off at least 30 minutes before going to bed there's been some interesting work in the last couple of years looking at what happens when you take young people who have problematic smartphone use and you have them turn off their phones at least 30 minutes before bed each night when they do that they Fall to sleep faster, they sleep longer, their sleep is more efficient. And as a result of those improvements in their sleep, the next day their cognitive function is better.
1: You mentioned turning off uh, cell phones and other sources of light and sources of agitation as well, as, as you said. I actually know someone who has not been able to sleep lately because she's sort of doom surfing constantly mm. about uh, Ukraine and Russia, and for some reason she's compelled to look at this uh, late at night. And so she gets spun up, as many of us do, through a busy day. And, and people you know seek to calm what you might think of as the monkey mind, and some mm. people uh, turn to uh, wine or uh, a stiff drink to do that. Um, there are perhaps downsides to that. Could you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, of course. And... <laughs> A lot of people have alcohol as a so-called nightcap, and they'll do so because when you consume alcohol, you do tend to fall asleep slightly faster. And alcohol will also increase the proportion of deep sleep early in the sleep period, but then later within sleep, your sleep will tend to break up, and that's for a few different reasons. One is that alcohol is a diuretic, so you're more likely to end up going to the bathroom in the middle of the night. If you have sleep apnea, then because Alcohol is a muscle relaxant, you might find that your upper airway becomes more prone to collapsing. And people who drink heavily are more likely to go on to develop sleep apnea. And people who have existing sleep apnea will find that their sleep apnea is exacerbated by consuming alcohol. And then alcohol also will disrupt your circadian rhythms too over time. Finally, there's the potential for abuse and dependence on alcohol. And this clouds the picture a little bit because if you take people who are alcohol-dependent and you withdraw their alcohol from them, then it can actually worsen sleep, Mm -hmm. at least temporarily. You'll you'll find that they spend less time in deep sleep, potentially a bit more time in rapid eye movement sleep. And then later on, if you've got somebody who has been alcohol-dependent, they're now clean, in inverted commas, then as alcohol preoccupies their minds they might find that that can also interfere with their sleep too and finally i i don't want to make it seem as if i think everyone should abstain from drinking I, i don't think that's the case at all and it's worth remembering that certain alcoholic drinks contain some beneficial constituents too famously the red wine in sardinia Cannonau is very rich in certain polyphenols but if you are going to drink then i think earlier is better less is better and If you're gonna consume some non-alcoholic drinks, then it could be that some of them are actually slightly beneficial. So there's a bit of research showing that non-alcoholic beer, because of its hop content, can actually support sleep health.
1: We've been talking for a while about sleep. Uh, How much sleep do people really need and how much variation is there in that? And it must be tricky to actually know how much sleep a person needs.
2: Yeah. There is substantial variation between people and th- there's variation across the lifespan and then also within a given stage of life. So obviously when people are born, they need lots of sleep. And in general, over the course of life, we sleep less and less. But you might find that your sleep also shifts with the, sweet, with the seasons, I mentioned earlier that the camping experiments that Ken Wright did showed that people had substantially longer biological night times and longer sleep during the long nights of winter than during the shorter nights of summer. You might also find that your sleep duration shifts in response to certain behaviours. If you take someone who's sedentary and you put them through a structured exercise training program, then that will tend to prolong their sleep a bit. And also certain exposures. So if you expose people to modest viral loads then they'll tend to sleep more in response to that. Although if you give somebody a really large viral load, then it, it can break up their sleep and, ha- and have quite a different effect. So with that said, how much sleep do people need? Well, the National Sleep Foundation currently recommends that adults of 18 to 64 years sleep nine hours per night. But there are some people who need a bit less than that, and there are some people who need more than that too. And so I think practically what people should do is remove any barriers to getting enough sleep, which might mean things like restricting caffeine intake certainly having any caffeine earlier in the day and maybe swapping some caffeinated items for non-caffeinated counterparts maybe having some decaf coffee for example applying those principles that i mentioned earlier when discussing light exposure and then thinking about your, your current capacity to sleep and that might sound slightly vague but what i mean by that is that you're someone who just doesn't get enough sleep on a regular basis because you have to wake up to an alarm clock then you might find that on the weekend you can sleep in for a long time and it would make sense when possible to extend your time in bed and you'll find that after a period of sleep extension your sleep now stabilizes at a certain length if however you have insomnia and you wake frequently during the night, and in response to your poor sleep, you're spending more time in bed, but unfortunately you're also spending more time in bed awake, then what's going to happen is that your brain is going to learn to associate being in bed with being awake, which is not what you want. And so you need to retrain Mm -hmm. yourself to associate your bed with sleep. And when people are treated for their insomnia, the first port of call is typically cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which basically addresses maladaptive sleep-related behaviors and thoughts. And with respect to behavior, there are a few cornerstones to that treatment. So one is known as stimulus control of behavior. And this is designed to help create a, a stronger association between the bed and being asleep. And the principles that you might apply here are only go to bed when you're actually sleepy if you go to bed and you haven't fallen asleep within 15 minutes or if you wake up in the middle of the night and you don't fall back asleep within 15 minutes or so get out of bed go to a different room do something relaxing in dim lighting maybe it's reading a book in dim lighting for instance and then only return to bed when you're actually sleepy and repeat that as many times as is necessary through the night in this instance you also want to avoid napping because even a brief nap during the day can reduce the pressure to sleep that's that's accumulated with prior wakefulness. And for that reason, the nap might lead you to take longer to fall asleep at night and also reduce the depth of your sleep. And then finally, the other important part of stimulus control therapy is waking up at the same time each day. So regardless of how much you've slept at night, set your alarm clock if you have insomnia and get out of bed at that time Every day of the week. And what you'll find is that if if you apply those principles, then there might be a difficult adaptation period initially, but quite quickly the quality of your sleep will improve and you'll spend much less time in bed awake. And then the other thing to mention here is that bedtime restriction therapy is also sometimes used in insomnia. And what this typically entails is having somebody fill a sleep diary for a couple of weeks or so, just to get some idea of how long they're spending in bed and how much of that time they're actually asleep and then you take the amount of time they've been asleep on average let's say that it's six hours and you only give them six hours in bed or maybe you add half an hour so they're now only allowed six and a half hours in bed even if previously they're spending 10 hours in bed and the way that you would apply that is not by making them wake up earlier you'd have them go to bed later and wake up at a similar time to what they were waking previously and then If their sleep quality improves, you can slowly let them go to bed a bit earlier over time, such that after a few weeks of that type of approach, somebody is now spending plenty of time in bed and the quality of their sleep remains high too.
1: That's very interesting. Uh, On a related topic, we've touched on it earlier with respect to our discussion of melatonin, um, but I also know that you're quite familiar with the general science of sleep supplements more broadly, not just melatonin. What do you think people should consider when they're thinking about sleep supplements and are any of them beneficial in your view?
2: I think there are a few things to consider. One is that the actual effect sizes of taking sleep supplements are typically quite small compared to some of those behavioral interventions that I mentioned previously. But with that said, I don't agree with people who say that you should only use supplements if your diet is in order because studies of supplements just give people the supplement or the placebo and they look for effects regardless of changing someone's diet and if the supplement is beneficial then why not take it if you can guarantee that the source is a good one now with that said i think the supplements that you should select if you try any should depend on the nature of your sleep so for example if you struggle to sleep through the night and you want to take melatonin, then it might be that taking time-released melatonin makes more sense than taking regular, faster release melatonin. You might also want to consider how the different supplements actually act, and it's possible to increase activity of sleep-promoting pathways, or you could increase the accumulation of pressure to sleep during the daytime, or you could reduce the activity of wake-promoting circuits in the brain. And all of this matters because these, these different approaches will influence things such as sleep architecture. And just as an example of this, if if you look at a lot of traditionally used sleep drugs, they promote non-REM sleep because they act on GABA-A receptors in the brain. Mm -hmm. And then I think some other ones are that some supplements indirectly help sleep. And so even if they're not thought of traditionally as being sleep supplements, they might be beneficial. And one example of that is if someone takes something for weight loss, let's say that they take spinach thylakoids for their weight loss and they lose a substantial amount of weight and they have obstructive sleep apnea, that subsequent weight loss might actually improve their sleep. You should also understand something about the totality of the effects of the supplements that you take. And what I mean by that is probably highlighted by an, an example. So if you took ashwagandha for your sleep and you are also interested in your body composition, and your performance in the gym, then that would make a lot of sense because there have been a couple of studies showing that when people regularly take ashwagandha, they gain muscle mass and strength faster in response to resistance training. So if you're a gym rat and you're also struggling with your sleep, then ashwagandha would make a lot of sense for you potentially. And then there are a few other things too. So one would be different supplements might interact with each other. And this is slightly fraught because most studies just take it an isolated supplement and give it to people. So we don't know that much about a lot of those interactions. And then there are supplement quality control issues too, as we touched on earlier when we were discussing melatonin. And then finally, I I think some supplements can also counter some of the negative effects of poor sleep. And one of these that I find particularly interesting is is creatine monohydrate, but I'll pause there.
1: Mm. Creatine is um, a fascinating uh, substance. Uh, It does so many beneficial things and has been I think really unfairly associated with problems like kidney disorders. And speaking of creatine, you've recently ventured into the world of entrepreneurship and launched a new company, Resilient Nutrition. And uh, that company's first product, I think, is called Switched On, which uh, you call the first supplement specifically formulated to mitigate some of the negative aspects of lost sleep. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, Switched On and what its key ingredients are. And I suspect you just named one of them in creatine.
2: (laughs) I did, yeah. And I'm not claiming that switch-ons is a cure for poor sleep by any means, but our thinking in coming up with it was as follows. A lot of us struggle with our sleep the most the nights before meaningful events, key presentations, writing a grant deadline, doing an exam. And it would therefore be helpful if there was something that you could take to help you perform at your physical and mental best even if you're feeling a bit worked up and you haven't slept very well the night before. And then the other consideration is that there is a large variety of different sleep problems, but a lot of those result in some common consequences on different bodily systems. So if we can identify those consequences, then it's possible to search for whether there are nutrition interventions to counter them and then combine these ingredients in in a way that's familiar to people and ideally delicious and convenient too. And so after dozens of iterations we came up with switch on which is a powdered cocoa based drink that is intended to be consumed either about an hour before breakfast that starts the day or about an hour before a, a cognitively or physically strenuous activity and th- the key ingredients do include creatine monohydrate but also there are a few others in there cocoa l-tyrosine L-theanine, caffeine, vitamin C, and some others, and it only contains clinically proven doses of those key ingredients. But with respect to creatine monohydrate, I mentioned it then because there's some really interesting research on creatine that I think very few people are currently familiar with. And when people think about creatine, they think about its effects on exercise performance. If you take creatine monohydrate, you boost your muscle phosphocreatine stores, and that might help explain improvements in strength and power exercise performance. But Creatine can also enhance recovery from exercise, have all sorts of positive effects. But with respect to sleep, creatine might affect sleep homeostasis, which influences how sleepy you feel over the course of the day and then how well you sleep at night. And to try and break this down briefly, the longer that you've been awake, the more adenosine and ATP accumulate in the spaces around your brain cells. And adenosine and ATP then act on receptors on certain brain cells. And that leads to the release of different cytokines that promote promote sleep, so IL-1, TNF-alpha, and a few others. And these then affect the position of different receptors on neurons. And these changes in the receptors make the neurons less likely to fire. And when that happens in lots of different nearby cells, the network of neurons starts showing sleep-like activity. So sleep is really a phenomenon that starts locally and it spreads through the brain. And eventually, when you, when you get that type of sleep-like activity in lots of different adjacent neural networks, you see sleep in the brain at large. And what creatine does is by boosting phosphocreatine stores in the brain too, it increases the total pool of phosphates, and that should counter the accumulation of adenosine and ATP in the brain and thereby re- reduce that sleep-promoting signal. And Marcus Dvorak, who was at Harvard Medical School, published some really interesting work on rats a few years ago showing that if you add creatine monohydrate to rat chow for a few weeks then creatine reduces the amount of time that the rats sleep it also reduces the depth of their sleep a bit and it will make their sleep rebound less after sleep deprivation and in other instances you might expect those effects on sleep to be negative but if you look at all of the research on creatine then it's almost universally positive. It has all sorts of beneficial effects. People are interested in using creatine for lots of different clinical applications, depression, neurodegenerative diseases, brain injury, diabetes, and various others too. And there has been some work on creatine monohydrate supplementation in relation to sleep in humans too. I know that Marcus has some work coming out on this subject, but there have been a few studies looking at what happens when you give people creatine and then you subject them to sleep loss, sleep deprivation, or restricted sleep. And you find that when people aren't getting enough sleep, the creatine offsets some of the deterioration in their brain function that you would otherwise see. And there might also be some effects on physical performance, too. So, when you consider the, the totality of positive effects that creatine has, plus the fact that it's very safe, I mean, most of us consume one or two grams a day in our habitual diets. It's, it's really interesting stuff. And in my mind, it's the supplement that keeps on giving.
1: Yeah, it, it, it certainly does. It's. Uh... As you said, it's seen as primarily related to uh, muscle, but uh, its effects are widespread and uh, uh, really interesting. So, we've had a kind of a deep dive on the subjects today. Uh, Greg and I know we could dive much deeper, but I'm wondering is there something in your mind that we've neglected to discuss thus far that you, you really want to make sure that we uh, bring up to the listeners?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And one of the issues with biological rhythms and sleep is that there is so much to talk about. So I apologize for my long-windedness, but I think that there are a couple of key things that come to mind. So one is that we need to be able to unwind at the end of a busy day. And there are a few different things that people can try that are quite simple and quite effective at helping with that. So one is when you finish work at the end of the day, spend about 15 minutes or so just tying up loose ends and make a to-do list for the next day. Because if you make that to-do list, then you're going to offload thoughts from your consciousness that might otherwise interfere with your sleep. And then if you go to bed, you could take your diary that you've made your to-do list in and you could leave it by your bedside. And if you wake up at night with something on your mind that you forgot to note, then you can just add it to your to-do list. And when people do that during transient insomnia, they tend to fall asleep faster and sleep slightly better. Another is that, around the time that you do that, you could schedule some worry time. If you're prone to ruminating and catastrophizing, then this sometimes makes people laugh when I say it, but if you block off 10 to 20 minutes in which to worry each day, and you commit to only worrying at that (laughs) time of day, maybe maybe you make a list, you, you list whatever you're concerned about, and then the smallest next thing that you can do to address that concern, and if there's nothing that you can do about it, then just list that, that's fine. Then at the end of that period, commit to not worrying about things until your worry time the next day, then that can meaningfully improve your sleep too. And then finally, I I would just say that how we think about sleep is really important. And I know that I myself have been guilty previously of not necessarily describing sleep in ways that facilitate good sleep. And and this is really meaningful to certain organizations if, if you're a wearables company or a nearables company, you're giving people information about their sleep, then you want to do so in a way that supports their ability to sleep well subsequently and also supports their function during the daytime. And there's been a bit of interesting research showing that if you take people, regardless of how they've slept, and you tell them that they haven't had much REM sleep, or you tell them that they've had lots of REM sleep, then the people who get told that they haven't had much REM sleep end up experiencing decrements in their brain function, their cognitive performance in certain activities. And so I think that is something that th- these types of companies need to bear in mind. And then finally, just a couple of parting thoughts. One is that y- you can't force your sleep. All you can try and do is create conditions that are conducive to sleeping well and then let it happen. I recall speaking on a podcast a couple of years ago and, and a lady likened sleep to love. She said that the more that you look for it, the, the more it evades you sometimes. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. And then finally, don't see sleep as a cost. Don't think about it in terms of how much of it you can afford at the end of the day. See it as an investment in tomorrow and set yourself up to sleep well, let it happen, and then you'll experience a host of different positive effects that are going to carry over to all facets of your life. Mm.
1: You mentioned uh, in that discussion, you mentioned love. Um, What about sex? Does sex influence the quality of sleep or the duration of
2: sleep? It's a good question. I'm not actually that familiar with this literature.
1: We could take a a study to the IRB.
2: (laughs) Yes, probably slightly ethically fraught. But, yeah, my understanding is that some people find that sex is conducive to good sleep. There's the, the example of the man who... Has an orgasm, then rolls over and is asleep within thirty seconds. That's yeah. the stereotype.
1: Prolactin, then, or,
2: yeah. yeah, prolactin and growth hormone, and maybe some effects on body temperature to energy metabolism. But then there are other people for whom sex is quite cognitively arousing as well as physically arousing. Right, right. And those people might find that it negatively affects sleep. So I, th- I think we have to take it on a case by case basis. Hmm.
1: Well, that certainly um, certainly does make sense. And on, on that note, uh, I think uh, I'd like to thank you for being on our show today. And we will make sure to include links in our show notes to your ebook and your website, and also to the research we discussed uh, throughout the show. This has been great fun, Greg. And uh, thank you uh, so much for joining us on STEM Talk. Thanks very much, Ken. Thanks, Greg. It's been great. STEM Talk.
0: STEM Talk. STEM Talk. STEM Talk. Stem talk.
1: Stem talk. Unfortunately, many folks do not fully appreciate the importance of circadian rhythm and the significant role it plays in our health span and lifespan. As Greg pointed out today, insomnia is a serious health issue that leads to a multitude of diseases and disorders, including Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Today, Greg offered some wise strategies for helping people who struggle to get a good night's sleep. And if you're interested in learning more about circadian biology, I recommend you listen to episode 79 of STEM Talk, which features our interview with Dr. Sachin Panda, a researcher recognized as one of the world's leading experts on circadian rhythm. If you enjoyed my two-part interview with Greg as much as I did, I hope you'll visit the STEM Talk webpage where you can find the show notes for this and other episodes of STEM Talk at stemtalk.org. U S this is Ken Ford saying goodbye until we meet again
0: on STEM talk. Thank you for listening to STEM talk. We want this podcast to be discovered by others. So please take a minute to go to iTunes to rate the podcast and perhaps even write a review. More information about this and other episodes can be found at our website stemtalk.us there you can also find more information about the guests we interview